0: Modern drug discovery uses a mixture of biology, chemistry, physics, and computation. Some use a little more of this or a little more of that. But on one end of the spectrum, the goal is to go as far as possible on computation alone. Deep generative models, as being pioneered by our guest Dr. Alex Zeveronkov of Silico Medicine, are able to learn from the latent information in existing data, and then generate entirely new molecules. And even, as we'll hear, they can discover new targets altogether. And they can do it fast. So fast that when they challenge themselves internally to step in and try to discover a compound that might treat coronavirus, they had within days. This is the Tomorrow Scale Podcast. I'm Justin Briggs. The Tomorrow Scale Podcast is a series of conversations with the scientists and entrepreneurs who are building the future. We explore cutting-edge technologies with huge potential and go deep to understand how these founders and inventors must chart entirely new territory to bring their technology to market. We have discussions on a wide range of scientific frontiers, from life sciences to AI, nanotech and materials, to the very food we eat. And we'll talk about impacts, time horizons, and what's coming next. We'll learn quite literally how science fiction becomes reality. This is the Tomorrow Scale Podcast. Dr. Zavarankov uh, from In Silico Medicine, I'd like to unpack this new world of drug discovery with you and discuss this question about generative modeling uh, in drug discovery. Can you discuss a little bit about your approach to generative drug discovery?
1: Uh, so, sure. Uh, we started in this field in 2016, uh, actually 2015 to be precise, after uh, encountering um, uh, the work of uh, Ian Goodfellow, and uh, we have uh, started uh, using originally the, the serial autoencoders uh, uh, for the generation of uh, novel-molecular structures, that was in 2016. And uh, approximately at the same time, we started working on a concept um, called generative biology. So we also generate uh, synthetic biological data using very similar approaches, sometimes even the same networks that generate chemistry. I uh, will call it generative chemistry, uh, can generate biological data as well, and uh, with specific properties. And we call it generative biology. So I guess uh, this particular conversation relates more to generative chemistry uh, space and uh, uh, what uh, it entails is essentially um, uh, you, you've heard about deepfakes and the ability to create new objects uh, with defined properties uh, uh, from scratch. So you can describe this describe what uh, a picture to a deep neural net, uh, and uh, uh, you'll get a uh, picture generated, actually each number of those pictures generated, where, where some of those pictures will meet your generation conditions, uh, what, you've, uh, what you want this picture to look like. Uh, or you can take um, an existing picture and uh, uh, describe the modification you want to see and uh, uh, the generative neural network would uh, uh, change this picture to your liking. Uh, and very often, again, you can see that the generation conditions are met. So uh, we started our journey, as I mentioned, in 2015, 2016, uh, failed many times, uh, and uh, we generated our first uh, structures and provided experimental validation uh, around 2017 so uh, that was the basis of the drug gun uh, right uh drug gun was, was a nice paper uh where we basically show the applications of uh, the serial out and uh just a comparison of uh, different models and serial and quarter versus uh variational and quarter. we show that you know the serial uh, has specific benefits uh and it works on uh, smile strings. I uh, will also show the differences in uh, smile strings and uh, fingerprints. And this is very early work. So we do not use uh, Dragon uh, internally uh, as much. So it's one of the many, many models. We currently have more than 800 models uh, that we use for, uh, for generation. Uh, about 30 of those models have been experimentally validated now.
0: Could we stop there for just a second? One of the things I really like about your, um, I guess, pipeline is it's really a pipeline of pipelines. You mm-hmm. know, you mentioned something—how uh, many, several hundred different models that you're using at different points, and along the way, you've published on small pieces here and there with specific examples and demonstrations, and even published some code on, on, on GitHub and things like that. How is it building all of those interrelated pieces um, and layering them in when? In order to publish, you really have to kind of nice and cleanly encapsulate something. And I think that's one of the struggles right now about how do you compare the new models versus the old models when this is a isolated model that is being demonstrated in a paper and not the, the full system, so to speak. Could you comment on that?
1: So, again, uh, we very often get uh, criticism uh, on uh, individual models that uh, that we actually try to publish to show that, you know, some things work better than the others, publish the code. Uh, So, of course, uh, the overall system, when you look at just the generative chemistry part, it can handle many cases. So for example, if you have a case where the crystal structure is known, uh, and there are no known hits, uh, it's one kind of direction, one pathway, one pipeline, Uh, If there is a crystal and uh, some already well-known inhibitors, that's a different pipeline. There is also a pipeline for homology modeling, so we can start just with the uh, protein sequence and generate, well, and uh, uh, do homology modeling and and get a few kind of predicted uh, crystal-like structures uh, for identification of pockets. Uh, or we can do ligand, ligand-based generation. So if we just have the known hits with some properties, uh, we, we know that there are some weak binders, or there are you know, strong binders, but uh, they are not uh, selective enough, or you not know, soluble enough, or there are some other properties that we want to add to optimize. Um, we can use uh, either one template molecule uh, to generate uh, to expand the chemistry space or we can use uh, uh, a bunch. So we can basically use a bunch of ligands and uh, uh, substantially increase the chemical space uh, around those ligands and then filter, uh, you know, the molecules that uh, do not satisfy uh, our kind of MCF requirements uh, uh, and then just synthesize those that are uh, most promising. For some of the molecules where we know the target, where we know uh, the molecular structure very well, uh, we can also predict the outcomes of uh, clinical trials. So for us, it's a kind of interconnected system. So we score some of those molecules by their ability to go from phase phase one to phase two, uh, phase two to phase three, um, and that's also part of the uh, part of the pipeline. So when the molecules are kind of cooked and baked uh we um, do the actual models for both the molecule-based clinical trials outcomes prediction uh, engine and uh, also uh target-based uh scoring so also for phase one to phase two phase two two phase three transition so it's one seamless pipeline
0: but when you've got one seamless pipeline with so many different modular pieces and you have multiple programs you have you know publication related projects, you have partner related projects, you've got core, you know, internal pipeline projects. How do you manage it all while trying to improve the system at the same time?
1: So that's a very good question. In the ideal world, <laughs> uh, we should stop publishing, uh, raise uh, a hell of a lot of money and, uh, just develop it into a system where we can, uh, guarantee that every module works perfectly well because we internally test it uh, and connect it to the rest of the pipeline, but uh, that would take a few years and uh, no, no, no investor would believe that it's you know, possible and give you so much money to, to go after this. So we have to uh, be quick on our feet and uh, for m- to validate multiple pieces of this pipeline, we need to either partner or uh, do kind of an academic collaboration where we don't uh, even retain the IP around that particular piece, but we need the piece very, very much in the, uh, uh, in the overall pipeline. And uh, the way we manage it is, uh, you know, we look at the resources we have available, uh, we look at what we can do internally and uh, uh, what we can retain without publishing. Uh, and then we look at what uh, what we're lacking and what we should publish uh, or if there are not enough resources at all to, to pursue a specific building block in the pipeline, uh, there we partner or we publish and wait for people to criticize and uh, um, basically give their feedback. Uh, or we do collaborative projects uh, that utilize only a limited part of this pipeline that we know that kind of has been battle-tested, but we want to ensure that it can go mainstream. And then we partner with you know, some startups, for example, who want uh, either uh, a new target, so we do target discovery, or they want to annotate their target, or they want to get higher confidence that the target would work in a specific indication. Or we uh, go after a very specific uh, biology and identify some targets there, or we even help them rank the targets. So for that, uh, we have specific pipelines uh, for molecules. Some startups want molecules for you know, more difficult targets. Uh, for PPIs, some uh, uh, on the country want to have uh you know a kinase inhibitor with specific uh, kinome profile. So. You want to inhibit protein A, but not uh, protein B, and you want to you know, weakly inhibit protein C. And we also have a transcriptome-based generator. So we can, uh, your reward function is uh, based around uh, uh, your ability to achieve the desirable transcriptional profile after your specific say, cell line uh, or tissue type is incubated with a molecule for some time. So it gets exposed to this molecule for six hours. I want to expect a specific transcriptional profile. Uh, I can now go backwards and uh, say, okay, well, I want to um, achieve this transcriptional profile, generate a molecule that would do that. And we have a system like that. So we can actually do polypharmacology using generative uh, approaches. that paper that I just described is still in review, where we generate to a specific transcriptome. And that one we patented, I think, about one and a half years ago, but only now we're validating it with a partner. We validate it internally, proof concept done, but then we validate it with a partner, and then we will probably publish, uh, publish the system, even the code, uh, so because we patented uh, this approach. But at the same time, you know it will be criticized by itself. It won't be criticized uh, as a piece of the pipeline, because of course, once you generate the molecule with specific transcriptional profile, you also build a natural model, you give it a bunch of scores, uh, and uh, only then you synthesize. So you don't predict; you generate the molecular structure with the desired transcriptional profile. So you just say, I want. Uh, this and this and this and this gene to be silenced. Show me a molecule that can do it. Right, and
0: not picking from a, from the group. It's truly generating the, the the molecule of interest from the start, and that's different from design me something that will pass muster to a discriminator as real versus not real. This is truly give me something with the specific characteristics that I'm looking.
1: For. Yeah, so give me a specific profile. It doesn't work all the time. So that one is, uh, <laughs> uh, you would need to do. Quite a bit of synthesis to get uh, to the desired effect, but the POC has been done, so I think that's a really cool uh, it's a really cool story. And uh, that kind of uh, is a very valuable piece of the pipeline, when uh, uh, you're going after a specific biology, and when there is more more than one part because it. it's
0: it's fascinating for you to be able to take that aspect because one of the the i guess there's a good segue to talk about the the criticisms or the the potential limitations of of generative models because there's the kind of the criticism that with too much data your generative model is not going to converge and you're not going to be able to it's just going to spit out gibberish on the other hand if you have too too dense of data you're going to generate molecules in one of the um criticisms on the ddr1 paper was that they were so similar to other things that have been uh, either approved drugs or published drugs um, the things they were trained on uh, how do you overcome those criticisms
1: I guess uh, from so one criticism and we of course were faced with that uh, multiple times how do you avoid more collapse uh, for shared neural networks and uh, for that we published a bunch of papers and we also did a lot of internal experiments to the investors that we can. It's that, that is not a problem anymore. There are methods and algorithms on how to avoid that. And, of course, the most important uh, part is to ensure that you can test for it very quickly. And maybe even test before you start training. So, we predict there be any problems there. And that uh, also comes from experience. So, you know where you're going to have a problem and where you're not going to have a problem. Uh, and we figured out many ways to avoid what for us. Uh, for, and that's both for chemistry and generative biology. Or regarding the recent criticism, actually, well, we, we we know those problems. They are obvious. We uh, did not really not exercise, but did not really try to create perfect molecules. We're just trying to, basically, you get, a, you, get a, you get a target and you are trying to generate the molecules and uh, synthesize them and test very quickly. As quickly as possible uh, using uh, our generative model. So that was the objective. And we really were focusing on the algorithm there, not the molecule. We didn't even expect to, didn't, didn't plan to take those uh, molecules into months. So when we were uh, kind of challenged with that question, they didn't have a lot of money also to, to, to do that, right? So if you, if you want to run. A much broader exercise and uh, use general with more diversity uh, requirement, novelty. You know, you can generate more molecules uh, that will be very different from, uh, uh, from the training set. And many of them were different from the training set. I guess these guys did not look at the generated molecules. We published 30,000. <laughs> And out of those 30,000, we explain the process of how you kind of narrow it down to those that are uh, easier to synthesize, and also narrow it down to those that are, that, that, that are likely to be great, uh, great hits, finders. I'll show that out of six, four hits. And uh, out of those four, so those four are very diverse. So yeah, you can uh, argue that, uh, one of the molecules is similar to penicillin, an and that's actually, uh, I would say, visually it is. But uh, the chemical properties, uh, it's likely quite different. Uh, we don't know until we test all of them, right? But when you are doing this uh, as a race, you have only very limited time to test, and you have also very limited time to even pick what side. Uh, easier to synthesize, and let's say you don't want to spend more than $20,000 on the experiment, like how do you go around that? So at that time, we uh, first had to cut corners, it doesn't mean that the algorithm is bad, just uh, that time it's resource limitation. Uh, you want to use general to generate more diverse molecules? Sure, go ahead. It's possible, and many people did that already that's kind of response to that criticism. Another kind of response is that we did this work more than two years ago. Uh, we submitted this paper November 1st, 2018. Uh, and it was published in uh, November so year review. And before that, uh, well, the algorithm was there the you know, beginning of 2018, that a test tested somewhere else. But we decided to do this kind of race for any given target that people nominate and use it you know, in the summer of 2018. So at that time, we, we didn't have the pipeline we have today, and you know, so then we raised some money and uh, took the pipeline to the next level. That's well it's a challenge project and I'll give you very diverse and uh, reasonably novel molecules. Uh, as a matter of fact, tomorrow we are publishing the results uh, of uh, a sprint we did for coronavirus, for the 3C uh, three, three, uh, three, three uh, proteinase uh, for coronavirus. Uh, and uh, we were kind of challenged to do so internally, so we wanted to do this project very much. So the investors gave us the approval to, to spend some time on it, uh, but not a lot of time. So we didn't have uh, luxury to, uh, to, to put the entire company behind that. And uh we used just four days to generate a very large number of structures for the uh, uh three protein a protein we've never any experience with. We just got a public got a structure uh, which is not not published, we got it from scientists. Uh we also did homology modeling, we've got a few uh, uh, homology models uh early there is some fragments that uh, crystallized to the protein. We uh, also did a flagon based approach. And all that took us four days. So we had to restart one of the generations. Uh, so some of the molecules will be published tomorrow. We're publishing them on our website. And I have uh, submitted the paper to uh, bioarchives on so the repository of the molecules and we really encourage the same medicinal chemists who are criticizing the paper to actually spend some time and look at the molecule that we're going to publish this round that we generated in four days.
0: You're publishing tomorrow on four days to look at can you generate a compound that would uh, which, which pieces are are you um, predicting versus generating? So are, are you going from a known uh, target. Uh, walk me through the, the the process. Not having read the paper, obviously.
1: There is a there is a known target, proteinase. So the target is known. There is a crystal for this for, for this uh, for this protein. Uh, there are no there are no known hits. So uh, we don't we don't know uh, any kind of drug like molecules that hit. There is uh, one fragment sitting in this crystal. There is protein sequence. So we know the protein sequence as well, and that's uh, the starting point. So what we do there, we have three pipelines. One is for uh, 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 crystal-based generation. So we have a form of AI that looks for promising pockets, uh, generates um, molecules in those pockets, generates some kind of template molecules uh, uh, in those pockets. Then we have another form of uh, generative AI, which. uh, expands uh, the chemical space. there are substantially around those templates. And then there is a filtering system uh, that filters uh, the number of generated uh, molecules uh, to, 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 the, to the minimum that we, that we desire. So that's one approach. Then a very similar approach with the homology modeling uh, system, so you have the protein sequence, you uh, generate a, a few homology models, uh, also, then you feed it to AI, which looks for a pocket, uh, generates templates and, uh, template template in a pocket, uh, generates a bunch of uh, variants of this template, uh, and then uh, narrows it down to just select few for, for synthesis. And then there is ligand-based generation, where you have uh, a template molecule to start with, and then you expand the chemical space around it, uh, so basically uh, try to use it as a the primary st- structure as primary scaffold, and then uh, give it to the to AI to you know, increase diversity, look for potential variants that are likely to be better binders or uh, possess certain properties. So in this case, we had only a small fragment, which is not a drug-like molecule, uh, that our AI had to make uh, more drug-like, and also expanded the you know, chemical space. Uh, by looking at this uh, at this fragment, so those were three starting points. We have many other uh, cases that we can handle, but here, due to the availability of the data, we could handle just those three, and um, we did it in uh, four days.
0: The speed and other platforms are limited by biology, whereas you're not, and and so now you run up to a, and something we talked about with you know, uh, other guests, the Lodo Therapeutics, in the last episode, this kind of synthesis barrier. Where you're winnowing down sources so to from you know thirty thousand to six um, synthesized compounds from the DDR one paper, uh, assuming you've synthesized any of the ones that you've predicted for this, um, but that would be the, the next step. It gets us to the the concept of the reinforcement learning of how, how do you, you incorporate you know, the reinforcement aspect with the generative aspect?
1: So we basically uh, have uh, a generator which generates molecules with specific generation conditions. So we set those conditions straight up. And uh, and then we also have a reinforcement learning system, which uh, goes after specific uh, uh, objective functions, right? And some of those objectives could be still ability, Uh One of the objectives that we used uh, uh, a lot was uh, MC18, as we call it. So we developed a score for modern, for, for tracking medicinal chemistry thinking over time. So you can sample from a distribution uh, where, you know, more people, uh, I mean, more molecules are from 2018, 2010 to 2018, uh, or from 2000 to 2010, uh, depending on what kind of, uh, Target you are going after, what were the success rates uh, in the, for, for those molecules and for that uh, the particular time frame. So we can actually go after kind of older thinking or more newer thinking in medicinal chemistry. So, so, so uh, <clears throat> some places will have, some um, molecules will have more SP3-rich chemistry, you know, more heterocycles. Uh, the reinforcement learning system takes care of that.
0: One of the other things that, that, well we talked about in, in before we we had the call was was the concept of of the importance of these kind of benchmarks but you've talked about some problems that it's very hard to benchmark against those problems so how do you you know match up wanting to do kind of reproducible data science with tackling these kind of new gnarly problems where there's no benchmark there's no existing data set um, uh, like for the paper you're publishing tomorrow on coronavirus there's there there not um, example molecules to, to use against that, uh, the, the target. You just had a fragment. Um, how do you marry the, the need for the benchmarks with the lack of benchmarks?
1: So, we developed our own benchmarking system, actually, the community with uh, a few other companies uh, and scientists. It's called Moses Molecular Sets. So, for generative models, we uh, provided a training set for the community. That you can use uh, to generate uh, molecules. Uh, there are multiple uh, models uh, that th- that are already implemented that you can use uh, to be able to compare your model to. Uh, and there are benchmarking scores, so you can uh, benchmark your uh, uh, the performance of your model against the performance of other models uh, in. Uh, uh, the diversity, activity, uh, selectivity, uh, and uh, and others, novelty, uh, and see how your system performs compared to the others. So I think that is a must for anybody who is entering generative chemistry to be able to benchmark and uh, see if you, you outperform something or not. And many teams, uh, like I review probably two or three papers a week uh, for all kinds of journals, and very often I see that you know uh, a pretty senior team is trying to get into this field, and they're making a lot of claims, but the actual kind of tweak on the original uh, generative model is very small, so it might be. Called with a fancy name, but there is not really real contrib- no real contribution to the uh, generate molecules. And I usually recommend using either, uh, you know, our benchmarking system or uh, uh, Guacamole, published by uh, um, Benevolent AI. Martin Segler from Benevolent AI. Uh, so they also have a benchmarking system, uh, but either one of or, or or the other should be used uh, to. Uh, see how you perform against the others. And it's a good idea to also use the same training set, do it all in a uh, uh, kind of controlled setting. We started working on this effort after we already submitted the paper, and kind it of made this uh, effort available. Currently, it's also in review at uh, the journal. And uh, internally, when you look at cases where there is no nothing to compare against uh, and like, for example, our, uh, our coronavirus uh, system, So there, of course, you need to check how the molecules uh, uh, perform in silico using all kinds of simulations uh, when, they, uh, when they get produced by generative model. But the real test is, of course, uh, you need to synthesize and test, right? And then look at uh, activity, look at viability, look at PKA. Uh, look at admin properties. So that is very important to have, uh, to have real in vitro and in vivo proof. as the ultimate benchmark. And I guess now we maybe set the bar a little bit higher for, for, for people to publish because previously many teams, including ours, were publishing in pretty sophisticated, prestigious journals, uh, uh, the models and uh, you know theoretical cross-validation or uh, uh, you know validation using stock uh, stock molecules. So you, mat- you you try to generate something and then you look at how similar it is to something that works in the in the same way in the, in the way you desire. So now you actually need to synthesize and uh, and test. Otherwise, uh, a journal or a reviewer would not accept that. So I think that we actually did a service, a good public service to the community. So now there is there is some hype, there is a lot of anti-hype, and uh, it will be more difficult to publish uh, uh, stories without experimental validation. So ideally, you need to go clinical, or you know, at least you need to go show efficacy the most, and ideally for a novel target. So that's what we're planning on doing. We actually did that for NASH. It took us 18 months to identify a new target, completely novel, never seen before. Uh, generate the uh, novel molecules uh, for this target. We took, took us two rounds of synthesis to get us to uh, really Uh, to uh We uh, validated the vitro in many, many models. Uh, we now have uh, completed a study in vivo uh, and that's, uh, a very relevant model, uh, mm-hmm. diet and used, um, so high fat diet, uh, and the CCL4 right. and use fibrosis and uh, NASH. So completed successfully. Hopefully I'll be able to publish it, but now we have a NASH program, which is 100% uh, out of AI, out of our pipeline. So,
0: Can you clarify what you mean by novel target?
1: So it has never been implicated in, uh, fibrosis or uh, or liver disease. So the protein is known so it's not something that uh, you know, we didn't have the sequence for. there is nothing about uh, known about this target and uh, we have to start with a uh, very dark dark matter. so we don't uh, we, we, we don't have a lot of training sets uh, we really have to use our uh, entire pipeline to generate uh, small molecule drug-like hits, and then we started refining those hits. Uh, so we tested, uh, validated, uh, and then uh, did another round of synthesis. Uh, we have another parallel track, so we have a secondary target uh, that we we'll really want to hit of metabolic origin. And uh, we also designed the molecule currently testing where you, know, you hit the primary target double doubleize hit your secondary target in a very selective way so that's a really cool exercise that uh, we are confirming now most of the partners those like this approach on target one disease.
0: <laughs> so you're you validating the the target in the model then the compound against the target then the compound against the the model you are Swallowing the whale. <laughs> My last question was going to be: Do you see the debate as revolution versus evolution? But that is a moot question when you're describing the kind of discovery development pipeline that you just described for for this Nash compound. Walk me through e- each step in terms of the 18 months. Y- your target identification is percentage wise: 10%, 20%. Huh.
1: So target identification—that's the most important part of the entire process, right? As you know. So there we have. Five. I, I can come up with targets for a disease within seconds, but then how do you ensure that you can trust exactly. the system which came up with those targets? So it took us a, a lot of time to uh, come up with a system that we can more or less trust. Uh, we got really nice omics datasets for uh, liver and lung and multiple other types of fibrosis. Uh, we trained a uh, predictor of age. Using a large number of data sets uh, from different tissues, then we retrained on the liver, and then we retrained on uh, specific types of fibrosis and NASH. So while we were retraining, we looked at what uh, uh, features change uh, as you retrain. And there are multiple kind of AI methods to look what changed uh, as compared to norm. So if I'm looking at a normal person and uh, uh, that normal person has Down's disease, you can very quickly kind of describe the features that make that face different from normal kind of healthy person's face. And that's what we are trying to do on the uh, proteomic transcriptomic level. And that's what we did to identify the target. So basically identification of the target when you're doing this kind of analysis, it takes you a few days. But then uh, you also get uh, maybe 10 targets that are likely to be implicated in the disease. Some can be drivers, some can be passengers. You have a causality inference system as well. Uh, you map into pathways uh, and then look at uh, pathway scores uh, for a variety of diseases and for a variety of targets. Uh, and um, basically narrow it down to one or two targets. And then you have to test uh, in the the assay and see which one is better. So, yeah, we had to do that. But actually, to do this, you also need to generate chemistry for each one of those targets and test.
0: Well, you've got an incredibly interesting uh, pipeline capabilities in so many different different areas. It's a fascinating um, uh, approach. And uh, best of luck in the
1: future. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks Thanks so much. Great pleasure.
0: drug discovery is changing. Call it evolution, call it revolution. Deep, generative, and reinforcement models are a couple of fascinating approaches. In silico's use of them together in these kind of meta pipelines is really exciting. But going from challenge to compound in less than a week, it's not just exciting, it may just be the future of drug discovery. This is the Tomorrow Scale Podcast. I'm Justin Briggs.